You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. This pod is with Dr. Richard Winters, who is a practicing emergency physician at the Mayo Clinic. He is also the medical director of professional leadership development for the Mayo Clinic Care Network. He's got a new book. It's called You're the Leader, Now What? Leadership Lessons from Mayo Clinic. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the S-A-N-D. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Dr. Richard Winters, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we've had a host of academics on this podcast who study decision-making in environments that are filled with paradoxes and dilemmas. And a lot of them bemoan the fact that even though science has been telling us for quite a bit of time that top-down leadership styles, which is often called command and control, simply don't work when complexity is involved, you seem to be echoing the fact rooted very specifically in your experiences working in a hospital environment, right? I agree. Yeah, exactly. So you talk about in the book, you say, quote, we need leaders who are independent thinkers. We do. So talk, talk to me more about that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So independent thinkers, meaning actually leaders that can bring forward independent thought. So not, not just leaders that are themselves having independent thoughts, yes. but actually leaders that bring a bunch of independent thoughts together. Um, because, you know, the, the interesting thing about our own independent thoughts is they're also behind our blind spots. And so... Not so good if we're thinking behind our blind spots. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that the one of the markings I look for in good leaders is curiosity uh, ra- rather than blame. Yeah. Discovery rather than mm-hmm. just making a decision. Right. Yeah. And so the thing that gets in our way uh, that you talk about early in the book is actually our own expertise. So I, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but talk a little bit about your how how expertise can get in the way. Uh, of, of a leader. 
Yeah. So, I mean, so imagine me as an emergency physician running, uh, let's say, an executive committee meeting. Um, we got the surgeons, you know, the, the the chairs of medicine, the CEO and that sort of stuff. We're talking about a really difficult issue. And I decide, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to I want to hear what everyone has to say. And so the chair of surgery says something and then then the CEO says something. The chair of medicine says something. It finally circles back around to me. And I say, you know, this has been a, a great discussion. And you know, after careful consideration, I've come to the conclusion that you're all incorrect. And we're just going to do what I thought all along. And, and I think that that is the way a lot of leadership proceeds in organizations around the world. I mean, not just healthcare, but kind of everywhere. And certainly as an emergency physician or an individual in a hospital where I go in and see patients and then I go write orders, mm-hmm. you know, I don't write suggestions, you write orders, you tend to think of Maybe maybe the world is that way, and that's what leading is. And in fact, that's maybe the first step of leading um, is is writing an order, and then maybe you back step a couple times and try to figure out how to make a, a better decision before moving forward. Well, it's interesting too because you know we we humans are storytelling machines. Uh, it's how we make sense of the world, but we're also um, so pattern making, right? So so we we see ABC, and then we see ABC everywhere. Um, right. And especially this, I know this is true for myself. It, when people talk to me about what is the the number one sort of um, barrier to innovation, I say past success because we have a tendency to think we're gonna we're gonna run the same play, run the same play, run the same play. And you don't have to know a lot about sports to know that if you run the same play every time, it's not going to work. Yeah, I mean, and so you know, this is it. Just brings up this this concept is, and especially within medicine, we have best practices, and, and these are things that are very helpful for us that really mm-hmm. get us through very difficult, complicated situations. I mean, we have traumas that come in and we'll have 20 people around one patient taking care of them. Every individual knows what they're doing and has their space and we there's best practice. And so we follow the diagram, but by definition, best practice is past practice. Yeah. And so the new things emerge and in the trauma room. Yes. But also certainly in, in, in business and as we're taking care of patients within COVID and those sorts of situations, the best practices no longer hold. And you can get in these, these discussions with colleagues where people are really, but we already know what we're doing. We already know what to do. This is, you know, we just follow this and, and actually what they're doing is they're practicing in the past. And so it takes, uh, on the one hand, we need to leverage this, all the learnings that we've had before. But on the other hand, we really need to look forward and kind of break things apart and discover new opportunities. And it's situational, right? Because you're you're also the same things that you might use as a leader in a certain moment, say as a leader in your family, uh, is not going to go down as well. Yeah, we need leaders who are agile, and so there are definitely situations where a leader needs to stand up um, and make a decision, despite not knowing everything. Um, but then there's also times where they need to step back and then gather perspectives, and our and our best leaders can do both. And then don't overplay one or the other. And certainly, as you're saying, like, you know, if I come home and I've been in the emergency department and I'm writing orders and I come home, I can, you know, my daughter could be like, you know, my daughter's in high school, my youngest, and she's like, well, this is what's going on. And I could be like, well, this is easy. I've been to high school. This is what you do, you know, (laughs) do this and then that. Somehow, it it just doesn't work out. It doesn't work very well, (laughs) though. Do you know who I am? And she's like, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, self-knowledge and humility go, go a long way, especially with teenagers. I've been through that. Um, to, uh, you use this analogy uh, in the book, uh, I don't know if it's an analogy, metaphor, uh, the baby and the angry wolf question. Can you right. set that up for, for us? Because I think it's it's kind of a lovely, lovely thing. 
Yeah. So, I mean, so imagine you just, you kind of like walk into the room um, and on your right, you see um, this, this cute little baby. Um, and then on the left, you see an angry wolf, which one are you going to pick up? And so I'll ask a group of people and, you know, people will just say the baby, you know, that's kind of the first instinct. And, th- and that makes sense. And um, that sort of decision-making is a, is a feature of being human. It keeps us from getting hit by, by buses. It mm-hmm. allows us to stop having to make decisions on, you know, all the thousands of things that we do. But on the other hand, it's also, it's also limiting because we oftentimes we get these really complex situations and we just make decisions just like that. We can hear about, you know, in any number of very complex situations and just reflexively pick up the baby, you know, and it, it just doesn't help. <laughs> it doesn't work things out so well. I know, ironically, I have a German shepherd that for me, I'm not going to pick up that baby because that baby, I don't know how long it's been since it was changed. You know, I'm not the mom. Yeah. All I need is a squeaky ball. And I know, my, you know, the dog is going to be okay with me. And so uh, I think it's, it's, it's important to step back, understand that we do have these reflexes in the moments. Anyone can throw anything at you during a meeting or any situation, but that we need to kind of let go of that and acknowledge that. And then think about maybe other ways of moving forward. You write too in the book, quote, the clear choice for one group of individuals may not be clear to another group of individuals. I think this is maybe one of the hardest things for human beings, especially in our current environment to empathize with and make actionable in their own day-to-day actions. Yeah. I mean, then the clear choice, and just like to pick up the angry uh, wolf or pick up the baby. um, I mean, there's going to be a clear choice um, there, but I mean, there's situations where the clear choice for me is again, behind blind spots and I'm missing really key things for other individuals. I can think about uh, a physician, uh, a chair that I was coaching and one of the, the problems that they had was they had so many patients they were trying to figure out how to take care of all the patients. And so how do we do this? And the chair had this uh, four-member executive team. They decided what they're going to do is they were going to open up the clinic an hour early every day. Makes mm-hmm. sense. So now you can see more patients and maybe it's more uh, it's better for some of the patients who can come in early. Um, but the problem with that is that while that made sense to them, there were working parents who were thinking like, how am I going to get my kids to school? Or yeah. this is that hour is the time that I have to, to have this other committee where I'm actually working on really big things. And so you may know in the moment, um, but it's actually probably better to step back and gain all the different perspectives. And, and maybe that's still the way to go. But as you'd make that decision, you would consider all these different variables and probably you'd alter that decision in certain ways to make sure it was um, it fits fits the best and then is most successful moving forward. Uh, an interesting thing I drew of that, and I'm thinking about a past conversation I had with Michael Slaby, who is uh, Obama's chief tech uh, officer in the first campaign, was the key differentiation they had there was tech was in the room at the beginning. And I, and I, this is the thing I bring up at Second City all the time when we have these meetings. I'm like, pretty much now, any decision you make will have a technical component. I mean, I know we were a live theater. There were no computers when I started. That is just not the case now. And everything is like the, our box office is our website. I mean, the, like the, it's, it's yep. completely changed, yep. but we still don't bring tech in until much later. And we, people have made decisions and they might even thought about things they're going to buy. And right. so this idea of, and look, I know you can't have everyone in the room. But sort of those kinds of understanding key stakeholders or at least get another perspective, I think, is, is sort of key if you want to if you want to be a good yeah. leader. I mean, you can evoke others into the room still. I mean, you can represent their perspectives. And so so at Mayo Clinic, one of the cool things that we do is we have leadership triads. And so it's the idea is that 
as we're making decisions within a department, there's a department chair, which is a physician, and then a nursing leader, and then also an administrative leader. And so mm-hmm. the three of them are together as they're, they're problem solving things. And so each of them brings different perspectives to the problems. And so it's, it's not like the physician is saying, this is what we're going to do. The physician is actually working with the nursing and the administrative leaders. And just by having those three people in the room, it helps them to see different perspectives. But even then, they can still, if the person, if they don't have the time to have task forces and have, you know, monthly meetings, uh, they can still bring in their own mind other kind of dissenting points of view to the room and, and think about things from that perspective. So my wife and I, uh, through Second City, working with the Cleveland Clinic and a group called Caring Across Generations, created an improvisation for caregivers program. And we launched this at Aspen Ideas Festival like six, seven years ago. And and what it really was was tapping into is work that we did with the behavioral science community at the University of Chicago and the things we know about self-disclosure and communication, how people don't tell you the truth. And so we use these sort of embodied exercises to get people to feel what it's like to share something, even somewhat banal, opens up the room. And our daughter uh, uh, was sick and, and we were in the hospital and we used these techniques all the time so that people were like seeing Nora instead of just seeing like, a girl with cancer, you know, right. kind of thing. and and it was it, it was palpably different uh, uh, for for them and for us. And so, can you talk a little bit about like the bringing the sort of human experience into the room, people talking to people? Yeah, and so I mean, that's that really is stories, and that is yeah, you know. So, so I was I went to Mayo Clinic for medical school, and then went out to California for twenty something years, and then returned to Mayo in twenty fifteen. And I found that in the other places that I had worked, we had values and, and, uh, you know, mission and those sorts of things, but they didn't, and I'd re- see them on the computer screens, I'd read them on the placards, but they didn't seem to be connecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a return to Mayo Clinic, one of the things that Mayo Clinic does so well is just the use of stories. And so the story of the patient who has gone through this, the story of the surgeon who has faced these adversities and, and using the values and the, and the, and the, the mission of the organization has triumphed. Those stories really are what brings the humanity back into the room. Um, and, and so I think it's important for any of the leaders, um, just as you were doing with your daughter, is this is not a, 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 an individual with vital signs and blood and tests to be run. This is a human with a story. And as you tell that story and, and have the physicians and caregivers understand that story, how, how easy it is then to, to kind of resonate you know, with that and then move forward in a way that's, that's better. Well, you pick up on tells too, because they would kind of know stuff. They'd be like, "Uh oh, I I know I know that look," or 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 not. Yep. And then same with us. So I, it, that was hugely valuable. Um, we had Ron Heifetz on the uh, uh, podcast yep. a couple of years ago, and I love uh, his stuff about um, the balcony and the dance floor. So, right. how, how did you come to him? Uh, reading. I mean, so reading, this, yeah. yeah. I mean, and so I think for anyone who's who's leading, you know that there is so much to learn. And uh, the whole process of leading is a process of self-discovery. And so Ron Heifetz has written some wonderful things. And, and that, that analogy of the balcony versus the dance floor for me is, is so helpful. I mean, we, each of us has this perspective as we're going about our lives about what's happening in the moment. Again, it's like pick up the, the angry uh, wolf or the baby. And as, as you move, I move. As I hear kind of the music. There's the ways that I respond. And it is reflexive and how helpful it can be for us to take take some time, just a moment 
to step up onto the balcony and maybe gain some different perspectives of the situation and maybe see things from other points of view or see, see ways that we might approach things that aren't so, so programmed. Um, I think is it, and, and the best leaders are able to bring their colleagues up onto the balcony with them to be able to look at the situation in different ways. In fact, I think that is really necessary in these complex situations. When I was talking to Ron, uh, I, and I forget if he talks about it in the book, maybe he does, but he's a musician. And so he thought, he thought a lot of his, I plays a cello and his experience in art and he improvised. He, he did that as well. He felt that that was actually informative in terms of, uh, what he brings to the business school in terms of talking about leadership. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, as you're talking with Second City, I mean, as you're working with groups of individuals and, and you're, you're kind of flowing with them, it's, it's a special thing that is, it, it tends to be, it's, it's weird because you have written music. So there are still rules mm-hmm. there. You have dialogue that perhaps may be written, but it's all the space in between. It's the, it's that connection that helps bring things together and really uh, creates the soul for those pieces. Yeah, synchrony flow. Yeah. I mean, we don't we call our our casts ensembles, um, and the, because the, there's all these sort of rules and and behaviors that are talked about when you enter the ensemble that anyone coming in the ensemble sort of conforms to. Uh, rules like you know uh, you have each other's back, you make your partner look good. Um, all of us are better than one of us. All stuff that is extremely pro social, and then everyone's trained in these exercises that are you know embodied exercises for this and. I mean, this is the thing, like Second City has been, you know, putting out star after star since Mike Nichols and Elaine May, yeah. you know, to now. And it's not like it's the same casting director. You know, it's the, it's that they're steeped in these practices that make people. I was talking to Stephen Colbert about this recently because um, he's on our artistic board and I and I worked with him when he was here. Uh, but he he sort of looks at any success he had outside of le- leaving Second City was rooted in his sort of improv philosophy um which is unfortunately pretty uncommon in most places of business and i love how you connected so on the one hand there is reading about things and being knowledge smart but what you're talking about is some people may read the you know the tactics and stuff but it it really it really is the embodiment of it that is that's the important stuff there and so and for, for leaders, for actors, for musicians, it's that embodiment that that's what that's what moves things forward. And we don't get I mean, this is the problem that we need a better word for soft skills because we don't have a lot of places. I mean, companies hire Second City to do this work, uh, but places where we can practice having those little conversations yeah. or practice uh, what it means to actually listen to the end of a sentence. That's, that's a, that's a very specific uh, improv exercise, which is very frustrating for a lot of people because you know, you talked earlier about basically system one, system two thinking, you yeah. know, we think we have the gist, but when you're improvising on stage and you're making it up as you go along, the last couple pieces of information could be crucially different. So you're listening in a whole different manner because you, because you're creating this in front of this audience. There's no different in real life. I mean, we can't, w- w- why we think we can guess what's going on in other people's minds, which is something that we do all the time is just patently. We we're not good at it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. So it, a large amount of my work is helping to develop leaders. And so I, I, I think there's a lot of pros about doing case studies, mm-hmm. but what I really love to do is have leadership teams and leaders bring their own problems and stuff they're facing right now and to help them embody uh, all these things they're, they're reading about and, mm-hmm. and actually put them to practice. That's, that's where things come alive. 
Um, you give a talk every year to new physicians and scientists at Mayo. What happens when you ask them if they have ever experienced burnout? Right. So everyone raises their hand. And this is, it's interesting because, you know, jeez, uh, I don't know, seven years ago or whenever I started giving the talk, a few hands would raise. Was it really, was there no burnout at that time? I think actually the, one of the triumphs right now in the discussions of burnout is that people have a language for burnout. We can say, oh, yes. we're burned out. Yeah. Given that, now, what are we going to do? I think that's the language that now needs to be created is how we're going to move towards well-being. Um, and I think we're still in that sort of transition phase of understanding now the language of burnout. And then so what what do we do with this and move forward? I think, too, normalizing uh, mental health is a thing. Um, and, you know, the, the uh, Jane Dutton has some terrific work at University of Michigan around suffering at work and how if we ignore it at our peril. Yeah. Um, and I mean, especially in, in your environment, I can't if you aren't able to talk about these life and death things that are going on, I just don't, that feels like completely being set up for, for burnout or worse. So, in, so during that talk, actually, one of the things I'll ask is how many of you can name six causes of metabolic acidosis? And like everyone raises their hand, how many of you can name the chambers of the heart? How many of you can name, you know, the 12 cranial nerves? How many of you can name the six components of eudaimonic well-being? Hmm. No one. No one. So we can name all the parts of our body, all the genetic things, all the diseases, but our, the very components of that construct our own well-being is still a struggle. And, and I don't know that that's, you know, the model, uh, but for me, having a model, some, some language to be able to discuss my own well-being, I think, is, is helpful. And certainly as I have a colleague who's burned out or if I have a group of individuals who are burned out, I'd like to have some language to start to figure out how do I, how do I even approach this? Um, is that the pagers model? That you yeah. About? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's uh, uh, purpose, autonomy, personal growth, environmental mastery, positive relations with others, self-acceptance. That's a pretty good comprehensive list. Yeah. I think it's a great way to start. And so, and I think there, it's important to step back. I think there's kind of two things that pop into my mind when I hear about burnout and well-being. So one, like if you go on Twitter right now, any social media, you're going to see people talking about burnout. And there's a lot of language of victim. Like it's something yeah. that's being done to them. People are in difficult situations. and But there's not a lot of efficacy when you're, you're talking about the world that's got you down. It, there just isn't. And so... Again, as a as an executive coach, I'd say, so given that, now what? And I, so I think of three different layers. One is the organizational layer. Um, is the organization measuring burnout? Are they measuring uh, well-being? As an emergency physician, I check vital signs on patients. That's one of the things I know. Burnout and well-being is, an, is a vital sign for organizations. If there's high burnout and if there's low well-being, decreased quality, decreased satisfaction, increased churn, like all this stuff is bad. And so so there, are we think, are we measuring autonomy? Are we measuring um, individuals' ability to to grow to the next stage? Are we measuring alignment with mission and values with purpose? I think the second level then is the way we work together, and so kind of the intercollegial, the kind of the relationships we have, and a lot of that deals with the ways that we make decisions. And so, are we making decisions like pick up the baby or the angry wolf? Mm -hmm. Or are we actually developing shared perspectives and, and developing those before we start to decide on what the options are moving forward? If we're not, then what does that do to autonomy? I mean, I, they asked me what I wanted to do. I spoke up, but I felt like I wasn't heard. 
not good for autonomy, right? right. For personal growth, for, I, I, I feel like I need the, I, these, these gloves and this hat and this gown, I need to take care of patients. How can I advocate for it? There are worldwide restrictions, but still, do I feel like I'm being heard? And, and is there something I can do to help? If not, then there's, there's, there's probably things that we can do from a, from that level, the way that we're running meetings to improve well-being. And then finally, the individual stuff. I know that if I'm, I've been working night shifts and I haven't been eating well and I'm not working out and people are being mean to me and stuff and I'm not having time to recuperate. I'm pretty prickly. And yeah. and as I'm facing the day, it's more likely for me to become more exhausted and cynical. That's on one hand. And so we can optimize that stuff. But on the other hand, it's the kind of the, the fears and worries and the assumptions that I hold about my surroundings oftentimes that can keep me back. I may have assumptions that things are occurring that may not be real. I may have fears that if I approach things in this way, I can't, I can't do this thing because if I do that, then I won't be a leader. If I, if I approach this in this way, then that's, you know, not natural. These fears and worries are oftentimes things that can hold us back and, and oftentimes are the cages that can help us along with all this other stuff stay in burnout. And so think about it from different levels. Are you familiar with Scott Perry Kaufman's work? It's funny. I follow him on Twitter. Um, oh, that's so. I he's, do. He's I, a very dear yeah. friend, and he has a new a new book called "Choose Growth" that he wrote with an MD, Jordan Feingold, who is on the sort of cutting edge of positive medicine. So, I mean, it it stems from you know uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania and the and the um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the uh, professor who did Marty Seligman. Yeah, Marty Marty Seligman. Yeah. Um, and and it was interesting. I I found. And, and Scott was the one who introduced me to the term post-traumatic growth, which also was interesting to me because certainly having gone through what we went through with our daughter and we were very open about it, what I, I had no idea that I will say most individuals are carrying around some deep scar. Yeah. Some in that because people opened up to me and they would tell me and they're like, we're not trying to compare traumas here, but I just, you know, it, it, when you open yourself up to that. Man, that and so so understanding that, and then looking at Scotty's work, which is all about, hey, let's take this as a given that we're all have these these challenges. Here are some tools and techniques that can maybe allow us to flourish. Right. Uh, it's not going to be easy, and a lot of it is based on his study of Maslow and the hierarchy of needs, and the and the hilarious thing that people keep thinking that that was actually Maslow made it a pyramid when he didn't. That was a marketing guy. <laughs> And, and and I actually just read a book, wonderful book, a scientific book where he, he makes this whole argument based on the pyramid. And it's like, that's not the point. The point is that it, it, it nothing stays static. Right. And, and I know that that's harder because we, we want things to be linear. We sure. want them to aid, add up to whatever it's going to add up to, but that's not the way the world works. No. Yeah. It helps. So, I mean, so that's on one, on one hand, it helps to have models like that pyramids to be able to conceptualize it. Yeah. And then on the other hand, just like we're talking about best practices, there's probably elements of that that are incorrect. And so it, it pays to go and read the source. It pays to start to think mm-hmm. about things from different perspectives, because otherwise the best practice of the pyramid, maybe that's not the right way of thinking about things. Maybe it adds to it. We can build a language on it. Uh, pretty impressed you snuck a Brian Eno reference into the book. Hey, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to us about senius, right? Is the term that he? Yeah, senius. And so. And I and I love this. There's so Austin Kleon. I've I've read a lot of his stuff, and and I'm a big fan of uh, Brian Eno um, from his ambient stuff all the way up to what he's doing now. So Brian Eno is a, a, an artist and a famous uh, producer, and I think it's and I love it because as a leader, I think about leading 
groups of really smart people who have expertise in all these different ways and how do I bring them together to create something better? And so Brian Eno gets Coldplay or U2 in the room Mm -hmm. and they have songs that are rudimentary and they're writing and there are personalities in the room. Um, and you look at each of the artists within each of these bands and again, you know, people have differences of opinions, but to be able to bring them together as, as one whole and not just as individual genius, but creating this sort of idea of something that is, is better is the first concept I think of, of like senius. And, and so as a, as a, as a leader, again, I like to be uh, thinking of myself as a producer, I think organizations, you think you want to stretch this out a little bit, and organizations really can have multiple bands, multiple areas of, of expertise where you get those people working together, and they can really produce something better than any of them working alone. And I just love the concept. Yeah, there, it made me think of a thing that, that happens here. So the leader in a Second City process to create a review is our director, who, and then you have six actor uh, performers, they all write the show, they do it through improvisation. But what he knows is that even though these are the top improvisers in the country at any given time, even they will get in their own way. So he always has a day during the process, the creative process, but he calls taboo day. And the idea is you have to bring in three ideas uh, that there's no way in hell Second City would ever allow to be put on its stage. It's too offensive, too expensive, too, like, it's just, it can't invariably like four or five of those things end up in the show or something. Right. <laughs> and so this understanding that as a leader, your job is to get great stuff out of your people. I think this idea of sometimes gamifying and, and giving them opportunities to play yeah. uh, and to innovate outside of their day to day is, is kind of crucial. If you're working with your, especially like in business, like a C-suite group. Yeah. And, and isn't it freeing? I mean, isn't it free yeah. to enter a problem and not feel like you have to have, like, this is the solution. I mean, there are, there's a small group of individuals who, who really like to feel that they have the solutions, but I think for most individuals, that's a really heavy weight to carry. And I think it's, it's much easier than to learn, you know, how second city does things and, and yeah. to learn how you, you solve problems. And from, uh, for what I was hoping to get with the book is to write some of these frameworks and tactics where someone can just open up to this chapter and there's the framework there. And now they put that into practice and things come together without that pressure of having to know. And again, the ir- irony is that you can't know. There's no way you can know. If you feel like you do know, you're actually restricting things. Yeah. There's a thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Right. Is, so, uh, uh, we're going to talk to Jeff Cohen soon, who's a Stanford professor. He's got a terrific book on belonging, the science of belonging. And there is an entire chapter on mentors. And one of the things that they noted in a, one particular study is that the absolute best mentors asked questions about 90% of the time. There you go. Yeah. And so this is what these one of these wonderful things. So as I'm trying to write academically about all these all these different things, is the language gets really difficult. And so for me. I think about um, what, what is a mentor and how does that differ from a coach? And so let's go back to this, uh, the, the metaphor of the balcony and the dance floor. So uh, as I'm mentoring someone, I'm standing alongside some, a colleague on the, on the balcony and we're looking down on their dance floor. And as a mentor, I've been there and I've done that and I have experience and subject matter expertise. And so what I can give to that colleague is based on, on your experience, this is what I would do. Based on, Kelly, what I'm seeing here, I would suggest you do this, or they might be doing this. Or It's really through my eyes as a mentor versus coaching, which is I'm standing alongside the, my colleague on the balcony, and I'm helping them to see through their eyes. 
Mm. So I'm going to, Kelly, on the one hand, I hear you saying this. On the other hand, I hear you saying that. How do you put these two things together? What do you Mm. think they might do? How else might you approach it? And so as I hear that the conversation is about a mentor does more asking of questions, I think that's in line. I think a mentor, our best mentors are at heart coaches. Yeah. Maybe interjecting a little bit of their own experience, but as much as possible trying to, the, the difficulty with mentorship is that oftentimes you, uh, you, you, there's like this aura about you as the mentor and people may follow it blindly and it may not actually fit their situation. And then it may take a little bit of time for individuals to say, what am I doing? And it's because actually they had not been questioned about their initial assumptions and they've just kind of glommed on to what someone else has done before. We need to write our own CVs, not live the CVs of others. I have a new boss uh, here at Second City. We have a new CEO and he's awesome. Uh, he actually comes from Sesame Workshop. And before that, he was at the WWE. <laughs> <laughs> Which to, And then come to Second City feels like just quirky math, like the perfect quirky math. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that are so interesting is, is he's, he sets norms. So like week one was sort of like, Hey, when I'm going to be real uh, um, transparent with you. Um, but that kind con- that, that conversation is just for you and me, you know, like, unless I'm, I'm explicit about it in terms of you going to talk to someone and I do not like politics. That is something I very much don't enjoy. And, and, and I just realized, and he didn't do it in any sort of like, I'm giving you my list. It's just conversation after conversation. I would realize that he was set, setting these norms and they're frankly norms that I, I, I believe in uh, ascribe to. And, and I realized that, that a lot of leaders probably don't understand the table setting that they need to be doing every single day. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think that really does come from, again, the values of the organization. And so mm-hmm. we have at Mayo Clinic rich ties with respect, integrity. I mean, we can kind of go down this and th- these, this is, those values are really, they, those are the things you embody as you're moving forward. Those are the norms that are set. And if, if teamwork is one of these things that is, and it is one of our values, but you're going off alone and not including others and not thinking together, you're going to be outside of things. And so I, I think uh, in, in those cases, th- that's what holds groups together. And then on the other hand, you see there are, are like respect and integrity. And in you know, some of those organizations are right now in court for felonies and, you know, yeah. teamwork and they're going off by themselves. And so, Again, the placards on one hand, but it's like the actually emb- embodiment of behavior on the other hand that is, it's so important. And I think, you know, as we go back to the concept of burnout and, and well being, and if people find they're in an organization that isn't fitting their, their values and their sense of purpose, um, get out of there. I mean, mm-hmm. so I'm, uh, I'm in my basement right now. That's where I'm like, I have a garden in the back. And so I will plant seeds. And there are some seeds that grow wonderfully and there's some that do not. And so then the next year I'll plant those seeds somewhere else, the same plant, and it'll grow. And so we may find ourselves in these organizations where we're not growing, where we're not thriving. We got legs, like get up, go somewhere else and find the place that serves you best. I get asked that all the time at the various conferences I go to or I'm speaking at where they're sort of like, well, I've got this boss who's terrible and everything you're talking about is nothing that they do. And I'm like, you got to go. Right. I, I, I don't know what, what else to t- tell you. It's like you people don't leave companies. They leave bad bosses. You know, that primarily I find. And so, you know, that 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 and it doesn't mean the next gig is going to be great. I guess the one thing too, generationally um, is is that I enjoy about the young generation. My wife's a college professor 
is, is these kids will not you know suffer fools like right. they 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 will not i mean there's other things about the generation that bug me and that's that's and, and one of the big things and i've been talking about this uh, uh with our our um uh, my last uh, taped guest um uh is i i wish we had some way of uh helping this younger generation um understand the power of discomfort and now that is different from that that can and should be different from boundary breaking mm-hmm. and that feels like the tension right now that we've got does that show up in in your place of work generationally yeah i don't know if it doesn't know it's it's hard to it's hard to say i mean i, I can see that I, I can see that in adults um as well as in younger yeah, generations and so it's hard for me to know i think Adults are oftentimes they've they've gone through so many stages and there's levels of security that they have that have built up around them and they've I don't know how much of that is generational I just don't yeah um, okay uh, we always end the podcast by asking our guests for a yes and story do you have a story for us I I think the the one that comes to mind just on the topic of this conversation yeah and especially from a leadership perspective is being the individual who's sitting in a meeting and it's about something that I care about. And we're having these discussions and the leader goes around the room and asks me what I think. And then I say what I think. Mm-hmm. And then immediately I'm shut down or I'm not heard is, is just realizing as, and as I left, leave the room or left the room in those sorts of situations, I often felt like it was me. I, I, I said something wrong. I said it in a different way. I should not have shared that. And I feel like uh, this is some defect with me. And I think the important thing for me as I've grown as a leader and someone who's helping leaders is to realize that it, that actually in that moment, I was doing the right thing. It's that it was in a situation where it wasn't yes and. It was no but. Right. And, and I wasn't being listened to. And, so, and it, wasn't, it didn't matter what I said or how I said it. And so h- how do we set up situations as we're leading? And, and I think as I'm talking about leading, I'm not talking about necessarily formal leadership where you have to have a, a title or a role, but even like informal, like as I'm dealing with my, you know, with my kids and my friends and stuff, how to set up situations where people do feel heard. And then also when you're not being heard, how to recognize that, yeah, there's probably some things you can learn from this experience, maybe some ways that you could approach it, but also it may just be the setup. It, just, it may be that you're in <laughs> that meeting was not ever going to be something you were going to be successful in. And I think once you realize that some of the self-acceptance things that people go through, it, it comes from this, I'm empty inside and I, I can't, I, I can't win, but it's oftentimes a system. And so find the better system. That's good. I mean, that is that is at the heart of yes and this idea that it's five minutes at the beginning of a brainstorm. It's it's your your reflexive approach to a human being. And it, you don't even have to say the words. It's like lean in, hear what they say, maybe ask a clarifying question. We talked earlier about mentors who ask questions. Asking questions is like huge, especially if you've got some seniority. And one of the things that I try to do with new people who come into Second City, because I'm, you know, one of the old guard and been around forever, um, is I ask them for advice. You know, hey, what are you listening to? What, what should it, what, what's your, what, you know, what's a great movie that you think I might not have seen or what great book? Right. And that changes the room. It just does. Yeah. 
I love that question. That's my favorite question. I, I'm very much in the music and just asking, so what are you listening to? That's that, that, that connection with anyone at work is a wonderful question. What are you reading? I love it. So uh, I am listening right now to Madison Cunningham, a 26-year-old singer-songwriter. Do you know her? No. Oh. Madison my wife Cunningham. said, Madison Cunningham, my wife said to me the other day, she goes, is that Joni Mitchell? And I'm like, that is a high compliment because it is not. Um, and I've seen her live now three times and just at eclectic, she's nominated for a Grammy, uh, her second one, just eclectic singer songwriter. I just haven't heard a voice like that. So let me ask you, what, right. are you, what are you listening to? Yeah, this is good. So, especially since we were just talking about Brian Eno, I'm listening to Fred again. I don't know if you've heard of Fred again. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, elect- it's, in a, it's kind of electronic dance music vibe, yep. um, but it's very much bringing in, um, just these different, uh, uh, kind of poems and sounds and and excerpts and and weaving them into this wonderful uh, you know kind of dancing like music and so it's very much you can uh, Brian Eno is his mentor they're friends oh, yeah and you can see the influence there and I and I just love that as someone taking bits of all these different surroundings putting them together and then you know creating some music on the dance floor it's it's yeah. just wonderful stuff. Uh, your kids are younger than uh, I'm, we are empty nesters now. And um, so I am back concert going and it's really fun. I'm 56 and yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm, I just bought tickets for Graham Nash. He's playing a very small theater right near where we live. And so I was seeing that in the spring. And, and it's just they're sort of like that is something I used to do as a young person that I recognize the minute you have kids. It's like, well, that's a rare night out. Yeah, it's funny. I grew up in Chicago. And so oh. I just this weekend at Thanksgiving, my daughter was home and we were watching some of the Cabaret Metro, um, you know, concerts and stuff that mm-hmm. some of them that I had gone to and she's experiencing the same stuff in, in Minneapolis. And it's what, that music and reading and all these things, these wonderful shared ways of making uh, new perspectives. The book is called You're the Leader. Now what? Leadership Lessons from Mayo Clinic. Dr. Richard Winters, thank you for coming on the pod. Thank you so much for having me. Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
survive.